0: This podcast is open for anybody to listen to but is produced primarily for undergraduate medical students for entertainment and educational purposes only. This podcast is not to be used as professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of a healthcare professional with any questions you may have about your own health. Thank you and enjoy.
1: Hello and welcome to Defining Schizophrenia, a podcast, unsurprisingly, about the medical, epidemiological and social aspects of schizophrenia. My name is Zav.
0: And I'm Josie. And this episode is a bit of an introduction. So we're going to lay the groundwork for later episodes by telling you a little bit about the history and epidemiology of schizophrenia.
1: Yeah, um, we were going to begin this episode originally with a definition of schizophrenia, but as we carried on with our research, we discovered that it sort of defies definition in the traditional sense. Um, It is multifaceted and poorly understood. So to summarise it in one sentence would be reductive and definitely wouldn't help our understanding. And if we don't understand it, then I think we'd find it quite difficult to try and explain it to anyone else.
0: Yeah, so um, schizophrenia literally means in Greek to split the mind. So it's kind of the splitting of the mind or its function, fragmentation of thinking, but not a split personality disorder. Um, That's a completely separate thing. Um, So schizophrenia is a psychotic disorder, which basically means that it shows impairment of the higher cognitive systems. And this means that people with schizophrenia often have difficulty in forming accurate mental maps of the world. This is partially due to hallucinations, which are just abnormal perceptions, and partially because their actual construction of belief is disordered and not functioning correctly. So the two key features are delusions and hallucinations, but we'll get more into that in a separate episode. Um, It's also worth noting that there's more stigma with psychotic conditions than other mental health conditions such as anxiety and depression, as they can be seen as frightening and possibly more difficult to relate to.
1: Yeah, the splitting of the mind thing is actually really interesting because I really love the sort of etymology of words. And when you hear sort of split mind, you immediately think sort of, um, what's that film with James McAvoy in it? Is it called Split? <laughs> Where he's got sort of eight different personalities yeah, and that's yeah. immediately what my head jumps to. And it's the same with schizophrenia. I quite often think that, I quite often conflate that and things like multiple personality disorder, definitely just because I think that's the way you see them in the media quite often. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I think it's more to do with the split for, between the mind and reality rather mm. than the split between the mind and itself. In terms of history, uh, I did a bit of research, and according to schizophrenia.com, which I decided to trust because it's, you know, the name, uh, there there are written accounts of symptoms of schizophrenia dating back to the second millennium B.C., Uh, The first recordings we have in the Western world, though, are similar letters and writings to those kinds of things, with no official diagnosis, but those didn't appear until the late 17th century. A man called Reverend George Tross recorded disquieting visions and voices he said in his diary circa 1690 uh he also recorded having to be physically moved from his bed to the physician's house who had to guard him to stop him from hurting himself because he had uh could hear some voices telling him to uh first cut his hair and then cause himself personal injury i think
0: Mm. so a lot of what we've kind of been able to think about schizophrenia in the past is to do with like first-hand accounts and the accounts of physicians about the symptoms really isn't
1: it yeah definitely and also the more you read about sort of historical recordings of these things you can completely see why in a very religious society you might have thought that this person was possessed by a demon (laughs) yeah you can hear voices in his head telling him to cause other people and himself harm yeah definitely see why that would be very scary
0: especially when there were no exact like biomarkers or Mm. like You know, you can't exactly just show it up on a blood test.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, What was also quite interesting about uh, Reverend Tross's accounts of his condition uh, were he wrote down quite a lot of the characteristic positive and negative symptoms, which we'll talk about in a later episode. But. Essentially, all we need to understand for now is that positive symptoms are things that start happening in people with schizophrenia, and the negative symptoms are things that stop happening. So for example, a, pos- a positive symptom might, might be the patient starts experiencing hallucinations, uh, and negative symptoms might be they lose a lot of their ability to socialise with people, they become quite withdrawn, so they stop being social but they start having hallucinations. Does that make sense?
0: yeah but i think what we most associate with it in like day-to-day society is the positive symptoms but it's obviously important to recognize the two sides to that
1: yeah definitely but also very interestingly as we sort of find out in a moment that lots of the sort of older definitions of schizophrenia were more to do with the negative symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we skip forward to Benedict Augustin Morel, who was a French psychologist, he introduced the term, I'm going to say this completely wrong, <laughs> uh, demands précause, something like that, to describe a similar set of symptoms in some of his young patients. And um, dementia precox or, de, or dementia praecox as it is in latin literally means early dementia um i think praecox is the root of the word like precocious and things like that oh, okay and that tells you a lot about the conception of the condition at that time um they saw it as a gradual degeneration of things like memory and social capabilities and stuff like that mm-hmm. which in many ways it are it is but as we were saying that is a very that is a definition that's quite heavily based on the negative symptoms yeah um which again is very interesting uh, just because the positive symptoms are more dramatic yeah. we see a lot more of those in the media and things like that
0: definitely whereas
1: actually diagnosis has been based for a very long time around the more negative symptoms um we don't actually see the word schizophrenia properly until 1911 where a uh, swiss psychiatrist called eugen bloiler uh which is a great name coined the term as he felt that dementia praecox was misleading uh he was also the first to properly classify the positive and negative characteristics sort of properly we'd seen a lot of them and they'd been recorded but he was the first person to classify them into positive and negative mm-hmm. which is uh sort of pretty crucial because those are still the basis of diagnosis today and when we go on to talk about diagnosis we'll see that all of those characteristics have been condensed into i think it's three different checklists that are used throughout the world yeah um
0: that they kind of they're very similar they just change um between the time frame in which they last the three yeah
1: yeah and like the emphasis is on slightly different things, things yeah like that um i have an extra fun fact here um is, is that bloiler was also the first person to use the word autism oh. so there you go very influential guy he was also very unfortunately a eugenicist so oh. so uh so i mean that over that one. his achievements <laughs> somewhat uh let's maybe leave him be now <laughs> and start talking about uh mental illness at, more broadly
0: yeah um so like what I was thinking when I was reading a lot about the definition of schizophrenia and how this has changed over time is how much this reflects the changes in society. So you think with a lot of illnesses, it's a binary. So like you have an infection or you don't, you have a broken leg or you don't. But most of them actually have a sliding scale of severities. Um, obviously, maybe not so much with the broken leg example. But like for the infection, you can have the bacteria present in your lungs, say without actually having symptoms or you can have like you know it varies from person to person um and then we just as a society kind of draw the line somewhere either on symptoms or investigations where we define this as like abnormal or as pathological which is helpful for diagnosis and treatment um but is difficult without specific investigations and so for example with schizophrenia when they couldn't it's hard to find Concrete evidence, and um, we're relying on a patient's um, reporting of symptoms.
1: Yeah, it's, it's like, quite it's, difficult. It's like one hundred and one of how to make a med student panic. There's no blood. Yeah, there's literally. no investigations. <laughs> what it's do like you there's do? no
0: tick box. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so, because of this, it's been argued that symptoms fluctuate depending on the culture in which they exist. Um, so, for example, historically, when women had sort of intense fluctuating emotions. Um, they were often labelled with hysteria but this label was only used for women Um, whereas the same sort of sense of despair could be expressed by men as like violence and impulsivity Um, because even though they might have the same etiology it's finding a way that's acceptable in society to express these emotions so therefore fulfilling their sort of like role in society Um, they may express the same despair in different ways which is quite an interesting stance to think about it
1: yeah
0: and so like even though there's like recognized causes and genetic influences of schizophrenia it's important to recognize that the changes that we see in the prevalence globally could be associated with the cultures in which they exist and what's acceptable in that culture yeah um in what's an acceptable way to express distress in that culture as well yeah definitely um and so as a kind of a result of this there's been a group of people in history um, that came up a lot in some reading that advocated against treating um, schizophrenia and psychiatric disorders in general called the anti-psychiatrists. Brilliant. (laughs) Um, Yeah, (laughs) quite creative. So one of the most influential of these was a psychoanalyst called R.D. Lange who he proposed kind of three phases of thought in the 60s and his first phase was that delusional thinking of a patient with schizophrenia was simply a different take on the world rather than sort of taking a reductive stance to it as a lesser view of the world. Um, and he claimed that these worldviews threatened our securities, so therefore we impose a diagnosis and we almost pathologise them and put people on these treatments to suppress these alternative views that are completely valid.
1: Which I mean is also sort of an, that's an interesting point because I mean you've still got lots of people today who feel that things like mental health are being sort of over Yeah. which I think probably to an extent is true. I, yeah. there's, I think there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that things like talking therapies are much better than uh, just, you know, medicating someone up to their
0: eyeballs. Definitely. Um, and it's sort of interesting thinking the way in which we need to, like, think about what we're actually treating and whether it's actually causing distress or if it's just something sort of like a variant. Yeah, of, like, the human form. Um, And then he kind of went on to this second phase where his views extended to this belief that families were a cause of schizophrenia. And this came in with the idea of the schizophrenic mother inducing um, the child's schizophrenia by sort of suppressing the emerging identity um, and sort of giving them this, like, repressive childhood that then caused symptoms of schizophrenia later in life. And this kind of explained why schizophrenia doesn't tend to affect very young children proportionally um, and why it was when they grow up a bit that they developed schizophrenia. But it's been repeatedly disproved since. So it's just a little nugget of interest, really.
1: Yeah, I'm just looking up R.D lying, laying at the lying. moment because I'm, I'm wondering if he was friends with Freud because all of this sounds very, very Freudian.
0: Yeah, I think um, he was Freudian-inspired. Um, I don't right, know if they okay. were friends, but they did, yeah. <laughs> um, and then his final phase was inspired by his experimentation with LSD and he Oh good, yeah.
1: Also very Freudian. Yeah.
0: <laughs> he considered psychotic <laughs> experiences as voyages of discovery um, which sort of broadened the human experience and the human perspective of consciousness and therefore he saw um, psychotic experiences as a breakthrough, not a breakdown. Which is really interesting because obviously as clinicians, um, clinicians don't understand, well, the vast majority of clinicians won't fully understand the experiences of psychotic experiences or schizophrenia. Yeah. So it's really interesting that some people who've experienced these, whether organically or via LSD, have seen these as positive experiences rather than yeah. um, illness or distressing. Um,
1: yeah, definitely. It's an interesting idea, but I think we do also need to take it as a pitch of salt because I think definitely. With, with sort of LSD-tripping-based um, research, there's I think there's always a propensity to be like, well, my mind has been opened now. <laughs> you yeah. know, I know everything. Uh, yeah. Without I think that's actual... definitely the
0: case in land. In <laughs> okay, so should we move on to talk a bit about now and the epidemiology and how we see it today?
1: Yeah, um, the rate in the general population is obviously quite difficult to estimate, but NICE estimates that the lifetime prevalence of schizophrenia and schizophrenia-related disorders uh, to be around 1.45% or 14.5 people per thousand, which, I I don't know about you, but that is way more common than I thought it was. Yeah, Um, definitely. um, Remember, though, that that doesn't mean that 1.4% of people are sufferers of the condition long term. It just means that the percentage of people who will experience at least one episode of schizophrenia in their lifetime is 1.45%. 25% of the people who experience an episode of psychosis will go on to recover completely. Um, Risk factors. Um, Some sources claimed that men and women were affected equally. Uh, One or two that I read suggested that men were diagnosed up to 1.4 times more frequently uh, than women, but I mean, it's fairly similar either way.
0: Yeah, and in terms of a lifetime risk, there is a heavy genetic basis for this. So if you've got a monozygotic twin, there's a 50% risk of developing schizophrenia, or if you're the child of two affected parents, and there's a 10% chance if you've got a sibling or dizygotic twin um, with schizophrenia. This brings about the question of whether schizophrenia is more nature or nurture. And we come into this a lot more when we're discussing the pathophysiology and the gene environment hypothesis. However, twin studies tend to show that the risk is related to genetics rather than environment because children raised by adoptive parents with schizophrenia do not have an increased risk. And those with biological parents with schizophrenia raised by non-schizophrenic parents do if that makes sense. Right. Quite tricky to get your head around.
1: Yeah. Um. And I can't remember if we've said this before, but that does kind of um, destroy the sort of schizophrenic mother idea
0: exactly. of um, development. And there's been obviously a lot of genetic research into it, but it seems to be a polygenic mode of transmission. Um, so we'll get more into this again, but there's lots of genes. So it's not as simple as your parent has schizophrenia, so you are going to get schizophrenia. It's A lot more complicated than that. Um, Schizophrenia most typically presents in late teens and early 20s, but it can occur as late as 70 years old. But it's important in an older population to rule out other causes of hallucinations and delusions, like other neurological conditions.
1: Yeah, I think probably the reason they cut it off at about 70 years old is because beyond that point it must be an absolute nightmare to distinguish between the symptoms of schizophrenia and the symptoms of some dementias like i don't know the difference between the negative symptoms of schizophrenia and alzheimer's for example must be are so similar that it must be really difficult to diagnose and even in terms of positive symptoms you've got things like lewy body dementia that lead to hallucination de- hallucinations and delusions, so it must be really, really difficult to differentiate.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: In my research, I found that many of the relationships between risk factors and the disease are not well understood at all, uh, but there are certain correlating factors, um, like episodes are often triggered by stress and or hormonal changes, um, which might explain a little bit of why puberty is such a common point of onset. But it's sort of slightly strange because as we've discussed earlier, um, schizophrenia seems to present in men younger than in women, but women tend to hit puberty slightly earlier. So, I mean, that's sort of a strange um, kind of negative correlation that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Uh, I also found out that schizophrenia is much more common in families with a history of celiac disease, which um, did make me briefly think that there might be a link with sort of inflammatory disease or um, autoimmune diseases in general, Um, but... Then I found out that those with schizophrenia are less likely to develop rheumatoid arthritis, so that was sort of short-lived. There is also some evidence that the use of cannabis uh, might increase your chances of experiencing a schizophrenic episode, uh, but we'll talk about that a bit more in a later episode. Um, In terms of distribution in the world, uh, I normally don't recommend Wikipedia for anything, for good reason, but their um, Epidemiology of Schizophrenia page has a really lovely Schizophrenia world map, which was produced by the World Health Organization in 2004, um, which um, tells you a lot uh, about the extent to which schizophrenia affects the people in those countries. Who in 2004 found the prevalence and incidence to be roughly the same around the world when age was standardised but the impact tends to be highest in Oceania, the Middle East and East Asia whilst Australia, the US and the UK have fairly low impact. Um, The impact is measured via dailies which are disability adjusted life years um, on the world map that is um, which sort of measures overall disease burden expressed by number of years lost to ill health and disability. So higher dailies in this instance um means a greater impact because there are more years of life affected by disability or schizophrenia in this case in those particular countries and there is some suggestion that this is more to do with wealth than geography as despite geographical proximity um daily d-a-l-y rate of schizophrenia in indonesia is nearly double that in australia um with which sort of suggests that um level of education about those about schizophrenia in particular, availability of healthcare, things like that, will greatly decrease the impact of schizophrenia. Um, but it's also important to remember that distribution is not homogenous within countries either. Uh, poorer areas are disproportionately highly affected by schizophrenia and other psychotic conditions, and also just lots of other medical conditions in general. Um, Urban drift theory suggests that those with psychosis might be pushed into poorer parts of the inner city because people who are affected by conditions that affect their ability to work in general end up in poorer areas. Um, So generally, the poorer the area, the more affected the area will be by by chronic medical conditions as a whole, but also by schizophrenia.
0: So we've discussed that there's lots of different factors that come into play when it's establishing which demographics are most affected by schizophrenia both in terms of prevalence and effect on lives. This will become really useful when we're exploring the pathophysiology and the treatment of schizophrenia. In our next episode, we'll be discussing the clinical presentation and diagnosis of schizophrenia using a case example. Hope you enjoyed this episode.
1: Speak to you soon. Bye.